Good morning. Uh, today I'm going to ask you to turn your Bible, uh, Luke 22. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 63 uh, to 71. In uh, this point in our story about uh, Jesus, he's hours away from being crucified on a Roman cross. He has been betrayed by one disciple, denied by another, and abandoned by all the rest. The religious leaders have arrested him at night and are holding him to stand trial. And that's where we pick up our text this morning, verse 63. Now the men were holding Jesus in custody. They were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept him asking and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, then tell us. But Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And Jesus said to them, You say that I am. Then they say, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage this morning, as we think about who Jesus is, and the humiliation and the suffering he experienced on our behalf, may we mourn our sin and rejoice in our salvation. May our hearts be changed that you may be glorified in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The religious leaders all knew Jesus. They had been watching and listening to him for some time. Throughout Luke's gospel, they had been questioning him, trying to entrap him. Judas has now betrayed them into their hands. And they're engaged in a sort of legal theater. They want to they seem just. They want this to seem open and fair. But they long ago decided that Jesus had to die. 
And as they question him in our text, I want us to think about four titles that are used for Jesus that speak to us about who he is. First, we see that Jesus is the prophetic Son of Man. The, the, the Jews, the, the people, believed Jesus to be the Messiah. But what can particularly concerned the religious leaders is that Jesus believed it as well. The council asks Jesus if he is the Christ. He answers, if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. And then Jesus says this in verse 69, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Uh, Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself. In Luke uh, 5, he says, The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Luke 6, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Luke 21, They will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. Now we typically think the Son of Man refers to Jesus in his humanity as a a descendant of David, as the the son of Mary. And, And that's all true. But there's something much more foundational and and really controversial in Jesus describing himself as the Son of Man. To understand it, we have to see Jesus in the context of all of Scripture. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And the Son of Man is the title for the ruler king that we see in Daniel's vision. In Daniel 7, uh, he says, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel saw a being of God-like dominion who would rule over the nations. The the term Son of Man is associated with Christ's humanity, but His glory actually comes from His deity. It's a statement that He is God. He has power, He has authority, and He is one who is to be worshipped. Only God 
is to be worshipped. And Jesus takes this title to himself as a reference to his own deity. Son of Man declares that Jesus is God. Son of Man is, is this Old Testament expression of the Incarnation. The eternal God takes on flesh to establish His kingdom rule forever. The eternal Son was made like us in all ways, yet without sin. But the title Son of Man is a statement of His divinity. Jesus is not only the Son of Man, He is the covenantal Son of God. That's the second title that Jesus takes to Himself. Look at verse 70. They asked Jesus, are you the Son of God then? And Jesus said to them, you say that I am. In other words, that's his way of saying yes. That's his way of affirming what they ask. Now, just as we think of the Son of Man typically referring to Jesus' humanity, but it's really about his divinity, we typically think Son of God refers to Jesus' divinity. But Jesus is saying far more than that. Jesus is the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity. But I think here Jesus is using the term Son of God as a reference to his humanity. Particularly his role as a covenant son. Think about how Luke uses the term Son of God. Back in Luke 3, uh, uh, the gospel uh, tells the story of Jesus' genealogy through Joseph all the way back to Adam, who Luke calls the Son of God. Made in the image of God, Adam was not divine, yet he is called the Son of God. He is what we would call a covenantal son, meaning he was the one who represented us all before God in the Garden of Eden, in what is called the covenant of creation. In the covenant of creation, God promised Adam and his descendants life if they would believe, if they would obey, and death if they disobeyed. Adam, as our covenant son, disobeyed. He was exiled from the garden paradise of God representing communion and fellowship with God. He became spiritually dead and then his body began the process of dying. As our representative, he 
receive the curse of the covenant. And in Adam, as our covenant representative, we all suffer the same curse. We all will physically die. And we're born spiritually dead. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are born by nature children of wrath. We come into this world guilty of Adam's sin and under the curse of God's judgment, deserving his wrath. Adam failed as the Son of God, as our covenant representative. We need another. We need another covenantal representative, another Son of God, born of flesh, born under the law, who would obey the law and fulfill all righteousness for us, thus keeping the covenant of creation. The eternal Son takes on our humanity to be our covenant Son, to submit to God fully in obedience in His humanity as our representative. He fulfilled the stipulations of the covenant of creation, and in this covenant of grace, He gives us life. His obedience is given to us. He obeyed fully, and then He died in our place. And so He merits for us the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God's garden. He gives that to us by means of grace. We don't deserve it. By by faith, we are united to Him. And this covenant of grace is really just a fulfillment of the covenant of creation, of the way things were intended to be, that man would obey God. Jesus accomplished all righteousness for us. How do we know that his life and death are sufficient to save us? He was raised on the third day. In Romans 1, verse 4, it says this. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, by means of the resurrection. As the eternal Son of God, as the second person of the triune God, He has always had power, glory, authority, and honor, and He always will. But Jesus, in His humanity is declared the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. 
this is, this is all part of the, the mystery and the difficulty of understanding the incarnation. We have one divine person with two natures. The divine person with a divine nature revealed to us as the eternal Son, as God, cannot die and cannot be resurrected. But in his human nature, he can. The eternal Son took on flesh, a soul, our emotions, and a human will, and as a man, Jesus died on the cross as our representative. He was raised and declared. And now he shares that with us. We become sons of God with him in our humanity. We have one shared humanity, and his has been raised and glorified. He is exalted on high, and that will be our destiny as well if we have faith in Christ. Think of uh, Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11. And this is what Paul says. Being found, talking about Jesus, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. As a human, as a man, as one called to be obedient to the Father in all things, Jesus stood in our place, was obedient to God, and even submitted himself to God, even to the point of death. Therefore, it says, because of that, God has highly exalted him. How has he exalted him? By his resurrection. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the Son of God in power, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, on the earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the Jesus enters an exalted state in his humanity as the covenantal Son of God in power, and he gives that to us. In Christ as the second Adam and our covenantal Son of God, we are not just children of God, but sons. Romans 8, 14-17, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. He has been glorified. 
And as we are in Him and we endure suffering, the day is coming when He will glorify us. And together we will be the sons of God in our humanity. He has already entered into that exalted state as the first fruit of our resurrection. And when we see Him, we will be like Him. But today, we are already sons of God. By virtue of His resurrection that He shares with us. Because the Spirit that raised Jesus up and declared Him the Son of God in power by His resurrection now resides in us as well. Jesus is the the Son of Man. Jesus is the covenantal Son of God. Jesus is Yahweh, the great I Am. As Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man and receives the title Son of God, you you can almost feel the temperature rising in the hearts of the religious leaders. You can almost feel them getting angry. But then Jesus says something that sends them over the edge. But it can be easily overlooked. In verse 30, or verse 70, the religious leaders say uh, uh, to Jesus, Are you the Son of God then? And Jesus said to them, you say that I am. In other words, what you say is true. Jesus says yes to their question, but he says it in an awkward wording. Why? He could have said it in a more clear and succinct way. Again, Jesus is making a declaration that he is God by going out of his way to say that he is the I am. The the statement, you say that I am, could be translated, you declare it because I am. Now, every time that Jesus says I am in the Bible, it's not him declaring his divinity. But but I believe here it is. He is saying to the religious leaders, I am the great I am. The name of Yahweh who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. I am the Shekinah glory. And it's at that moment that the religious leaders lose it. You know, son of man, son of God, those could be ambiguous enough. But Jesus makes it perfectly clear. He claims not only to be this prophetic fulfillment of the Son of Man or a covenantal Son of God, he is saying, I am your God. 
I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob. And that was too much. Jesus, at that moment, knowingly sealed his own fate. Jesus had condemned himself in their eyes. What did they immediately say? Verse 71, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own ears. Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the great I Am. Jesus is also the Christ, the Anointed. Jesus has claimed that He is God. And so He must die. The problem is the, the religious leaders don't have the authority to do it. They can't put Jesus to death. Rome can. And in verse 67, they ask Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell us. But Jesus said, if I tell you, you will not believe. To be the Christ is to be the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of David, who would sit on the throne of his father as king and rule the nations. Their emperor of Rome didn't care if Jesus claimed to be a god. Rome had a pantheon of gods. What's one more? Who cares? But what the emperor could not tolerate is another king. This is the opening the religious leaders have looked for. They want to condemn Jesus because he says he's God, but they're going to turn him over to Pilate because Pilate can put him to death because he claims to be king. And in Romans, or John 19, Pilate wants to release Jesus. He doesn't find anything worthy of death. Well, what did the Jews say? If you release Jesus, you're no friend to Caesar. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And what do they say? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. Jesus had come in power, proclaiming the kingdom with signs of the power of the kingdom. He cast out demons, he healed the sick, he raised the dead. Some of the elders of Israel recognized him. If you remember uh, in John 3, Nicodemus comes to him at night, a Pharisee. And he says to Jesus, we know you are a teacher from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. But most of the other 
religious leaders didn't see the glory of Christ. Why? Unbelief. Their hearts were hardened. So they refused to bow before God and believe in his Christ. Jesus describes them in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others. But within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Their religion, their obedience was off the show. They didn't have a heart for God. Think of, think of their response in verse 71 of our text. What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. If only these men had answered their own questions in a different way, they could have been saved. But from their vantage point, the cost was too much. They weren't willing to risk their power and their position in society. They didn't want the possibility of giving up the loss of what they now had for what would be theirs for eternity in the future. Jesus addresses this kind of thinking and he calls it foolishness. In Luke 9, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? The world functions as though this is all that there is. Their eyes are on this present moment. And they close their eyes and their ears to the truth of what God says in the future that he would have for them. Maybe a modern rewording of Jesus' quote is uh, 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 Jim Elliot who was killed on the mission field of Ecuador in, in 1956 at the age of 29. Before he went, he wrote in his journal, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot. To live in light of God and eternity is the very heart of wisdom. 
and is what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. To understand and be in awe and worship before our great God. Well, we're believers. We've turned from sin and turned to Christ. And so, we don't struggle with unbelief anymore. Right? Every time we sin, it's a moment or a pocket of unbelief in our heart. It's a time or a place where we say we know better than God, so we are going to go our own way. It is the epitome of foolishness. And it's the sin of the garden all over again. Adam and Eve knew what was right, but they decided to live autonomously, to be God, and to make up their own decision of right and wrong. And so, when we sin, we're choosing autonomy rather than the creaturely dependence that God made us for. Or it's unbelief when we grumble about life or circumstances as though God is not in control of our days and our life. When all we do is complain, it is a form of unbelief. We are not believing that God is good in our circumstances. That the disappointments and frustrations, the pain and the suffering are providentially from His hand and for our good as He molds us. Think of uh, uh, Romans 5, 3-5. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. We don't have to like suffering. I don't like suffering. And we certainly can ask God to take it away. But what we have to understand is that there is growth. There is maturity that comes through suffering that doesn't come in any other way. It takes faith, belief. A belief in God and what He says to to see that reality and to respond with confidence and an inner joy, even in the midst of sadness. What about when we covet? That's a, that's a form of unbelief. Not just when we covet people's possessions. That's pretty obvious. We know when we're doing that. But perhaps it's when we secretly covet other people's spiritual gifts and experiences. 
perhaps God seems to, to make other people's paths much clearer, what they should do and where they should go. He opens doors at the right time. Or maybe you see someone with a, a, a gift of prophecy or a gift of tongues. And you want it too. You want God to speak to you in some direct fashion. Are you believing God has given you the gift or gifts and experiences that He has chosen for you? In 1 Corinthians 12, it says that the Holy Spirit gives gifts, manifestations of His presence for the common good as He wills it to each accordingly. Again, it's not wrong to ask God for a particular gift. As long as our heart is content with the answer. And our desire is for our good and for the good of His church. But what I've noticed sometimes is that people become dissatisfied with what God has given them, how he has already spoken, and they want something different. Spiritual gifts vary. And God gives them to whom he pleases, in the ways that he pleases. No one gift is more important than another or should be valued above the others. But what God has given all of us, as Christians, are the ordinary means of grace. The Word, the prayers, and the local church. We can become so obsessed to have a direct Word that we hold the Scriptures in contempt as something less. What is the normal means that God works? It's through His Spirit, by His Word. That's the universal for all of us. For all Scripture is breathed out and good to equip us for every good work that God calls us to do. Do we sometimes have unbelief in the sufficiency and the power of the Word of God revealed in Scripture? So what do we do in Moments of our unbelief, whether it's a specific sin or a struggle of faith, when we question maybe God's faithfulness or His goodness in our life, the answer is simple. When we see unbelief, we confess it. We turn to Christ, we ask Him to strengthen us, and then we step forward in faith and obedience to Christ. What is God calling you to do in this? He is the great I am who took on flesh and suffered for us. He's given us his life. And he gives us all the good gifts and experiences that we need. And he's given us his spirit 
and made us one with himself in order that we can be brought back to God. And we can come to the throne room of grace in our time of trouble to receive the, the mercy and the grace of God that we so need. And so this morning, God is calling you to believe what he says and to trust him with all that God has given you. And as we do that, actually, his grace multiplies in our life. And we begin to see God working in ways that we never saw. We pray. Our Heavenly Father, we read your word and we, we agree in our hearts. But so often in life, it's hard to follow. It's hard to believe it's real in the day-to-day of, of disappointment and suffering and misunderstanding and doubt. Uh, Father, we ask that this morning, uh, above everything else, that we would be convinced that you are forever committed to us, that your love is beyond measure and beyond our understanding and that we would grow this morning regardless of our circumstance to trust you more and we ask this in jesus name amen